We are um, in week two of a new sermon series. We've entitled this new sermon series, Really. It's based upon an old Saturday Night Live skit with Seth Meyers and Amy Poehler, where they would read the news, and then they would read something that just sounded incredulous, and they'd say, really? Right? You can just sort of hear that in their voices. It's sort of a little bit sarcastic. Uh, Last week, we took a look at the Apostle Paul. He was our first sort of really character. And of course, the reason we ask really about the Apostle Paul is because he was a man who contributed to the murder of Christians. He actually celebrated and applauded the death of these believers. And of course, the Bible's filled with many of these uh, stories that we could say really to. Today, we're going to be looking at another really candidate. This person uh, is not a murderer. Instead, they're a bit of a bumbler. They're a little bit of somebody who's just a little bit of a mess. This particular person's missteps and mistakes are highlighted prominently throughout the Gospels, and yet Jesus still chose him to lead his church. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to begin the sermon with an introduction of another surprising choice to lead another important organization. In the clip that we're going to watch in just a moment, Mr. Callahan, the owner of a large auto parts manufacturing company, has just told three potential investors that he intends to hand the company over to his son, Tommy, who graduated college after seven years and has just returned home. Before we jump into this deeply moving uh, clip, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for the people that are here this morning. Um, I thank you, Father, that you are a God who pursues us. Father, you're a God who loves us. You're a God who desires to reconcile us to yourself. You're a God who desires to redeem us and forgive us and restore us and to sanctify us and to help us to become more and more like your son Jesus. And so, Father, I pray today that we would entrust our hearts and our minds and our lives to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are just a bunch of little clips from that movie. By the way, I don't recommend Tommy Boy, but it is funny. Anyway, and there are about 20 different clips that are not unlike that clip that demonstrate that Tommy Boy, this uh, guy that his dad is getting ready to turn the company over to, is a total mess. Um, He doesn't seem to fit the uh, profile of a leader, and yet his dad loves him and chooses him to run the company anyway. Now, we see something similar in the life of this really candidate this morning, Peter. Peter is also a bit of a mess, but Jesus loved him too and empowered him with a position of leadership in the early church. Now, let's jump into the story of Peter and let's see what we find there. First uh, main point that I want to make is that I think part of what we see in the life of Peter is that God chooses just regular people, just ordinary people. We're going to look at verse Uh, 18, verses 18 and 20 through chapter 4 of Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So I'm going to transition really quickly here and talk about the Los Angeles Chargers, my favorite football team. Some of you may know that they uh, recently hired Jim Harbaugh to be their coach. Harbaugh coached, just coached the University of Michigan to a national championship, and he was really one of the hottest names on the coaching market. Now, Jim Harbaugh is known for a few different things. One, he is known for being quirky, which he definitely is, if you've ever listened to him interviewed. Two, he's known for constantly using what people call Harbaugh-isms, like faith, family, 
and football, which he does. And then finally, he's known for assembling a great staff wherever he goes. That's also true. He knows that in order to win in the NFL or in college, you need an exceptional team around you. In fact, many of the articles that have been written since he was hired have had titles like Harbaugh Assembles All-Star Staff. Of course, that's how you should assemble your team or your staff or your organization. That is not, however, how God does it. Throughout the Bible, in fact, we see almost exactly the opposite. God is constantly choosing ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's true here with Peter. Peter's not a a lawyer. He's not a doctor. He's just a blue-collar guy. He's not a scholar or a thought leader. Instead, he's a fisherman. He's the kind of guy who definitely needed to shower off when he came home from work. And if John chapter 21 is any indication, he also had a job where he often worked with his shirt off. Peter was not elite He was ordinary, and yet Jesus chose Peter. And when Jesus chose him, He gave Peter a new purpose, and He gave Peter a new identity. His purpose, we see it in verse 19, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. In just a little while, we'll see how that goes. Jesus doesn't just give Peter a new purpose, however, Jesus also gives Peter a new identity. Peter's given name is Simon which is a bit ironic because Simon means listening. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, Peter is actually mostly known for talking. In fact, some scholars have called Peter the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. In each of the four Gospels, we read that Jesus gives Simon a new name, Peter, which means rock or stone. And as far as I can tell, this nickname is aspirational. In other words, it's intended to be a reminder from Jesus to Peter of who he's calling him to be one day, steady, strong, dependable. Interestingly, in the Gospels, sometimes Jesus still calls him Simon, and at other times, Jesus calls him Peter. Some scholars have theorized that when Jesus calls him Simon, that it's a subtle rebuke, a reminder that he's living out of his old identity. And then when Jesus calls him Peter, it's a reminder of who he's called to be. Let me pause here for just a moment. The point is that in Peter, we see that God chooses ordinary people to carry out his vision, to carry out his plan. That's actually part of my story. When I graduated from college, I knew that I was going to seminary. That's a little bit of a long story. Basically, when I was a senior, one of my professors somewhere around Christmas break, asked me what I was doing after graduation. And uh, I told him, I said, I I don't know. And he said, well, there's this um, full ride scholarship to Covenant Seminary for one biblical studies graduate from Covenant College every year to go to Covenant Seminary. I think you ought to apply. I was like, okay. So I applied for the scholarship. And when I came back in the spring semester, my professor came to me and said, hey, you, you got the scholarship. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to seminary. But I still didn't know that, uh, that I wanted to be a pastor or go into ministry. And so, interestingly, that summer, right after I graduated, I went to the North Carolina mountains for what was intended to be a multiple-day camping trip. I got, you know, food, I got some water, I got my Bible, I got a, um, a, a journal and a pen, and I started out to, to hiking sort of along this river. And my whole intent of this trip was to try to ask God, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? 
And it was interesting. I remember sitting along the trail and overlooking this river. And one of the first things I remember is that I read Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. And that's the passage of Scripture that says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so it's this super sobering comment by Jesus. Again, it's hyperbole. He's not actually telling you to hate your father and mother. What he's saying is your faithfulness to me needs to overshadow the faithfulness to any other person in your life. It was a sobering thing to read. But the other thing that I remember as I was sitting there journaling along the river and as I was praying, as I remember sort of talking to God and saying, God, who am I? Like, I'm not particularly intellectual. I'm not particularly smart. You know, I do like sports. You know, I'm the guy that goes to Quick Trip and eats the hot dogs that roll around in the thing. You know what I mean? Like, you wonder who eats those? It's me. I've always just been one of the guys. And I remember you know, pretty vividly as I prayed there and sat next to the river, I remember God sort of saying, that's exactly why I want you. I want you because you're normal, (laughs) because you're ordinary. And I just remember thinking like, well, I got that, (laughs) you know. 30 years later, it would seem that God was right. Now, in one sense, every one of you in this room is extraordinary. I don't mean to diminish who you are as people. You've been created in God's image. That's amazing. As Psalm 8 says, you've been crowned with glory and honor. That's also remarkable. Each of you has been given particular gifts and strengths. But in another sense, most of you in this room are exactly ordinary. Your students, your moms, your dads, your teachers, your business people. And I would argue that you are exactly the kind of people that God is looking for. And also, like Peter, I believe that God has called you to a purpose and an identity which can only be found in Him. So, part of what we see in the story of Peter is that God calls ordinary people to carry out His vision. What do we see next? Well, the next thing we see is that God uses messy people. Perhaps no one in the Bible gets as much shade as poor Peter. It's almost as if the authors go out of their way to highlight his failures. Let's take a look at a few of his famous missteps. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 14. In this passage, Jesus has just fed a crowd of 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Afterwards, Jesus went alone to, went off by himself to be alone and to pray, and the disciples got in the boat and they went across the Sea of Galilee. They made their way to the other side. Sometime later in the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., the wind picked up and the disciples saw something that terrified them a figure walking towards them on the water out of the darkness. Let's jump into verse 27, read this account. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Notice that initially Jesus, when he sort of let them know it was just him, he said, it is I. He did not say, y'all come on out to me. That was Peter's idea. Peter was the one who said, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And so Jesus does, and Peter, to his credit, steps out of the boat 
and onto the water, briefly walking upon the waves in the darkness until he took his eyes off of Jesus and focused instead on the chaos around him. His fear overshadowed his faith, and he began to sink. Jesus, of course, saved him, but then Jesus asked Peter a great question. He says, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? It's not a bad question for us to ask ourselves either. Just one chapter later, we see Peter admonished by Jesus again. This time, Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees about the source of uncleanliness, and Jesus essentially says that the real cause of uncleanliness isn't physical, but instead it's spiritual. So, let's take a quick look, beginning in verse 10 of Matthew 15. And He called the people to Him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to Him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Jesus said to him, explain the parable to us. And he, that is Jesus, said, are you also still without understanding? Now, that sounds a little harsh, but this story completely reminds me of myself. And instead of taking a moment to do the work and to think, I'll often ask a question when the answer is actually within reach had I just taken a moment to work it out. Jesus calls Peter on this. In the previous story of Peter's sinking, Jesus admonishes him for having little faith, but this time Jesus admonishes Peter for being still without understanding. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, neither of those uh, vignettes feel like especially big failures, but again, for some reason, the gospel writers go out of their way to point them out. And Peter's failures actually get bigger and bigger the further we move into the story. His next failure is found in the very next chapter of Matthew 16. There we read this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took Him aside, that is, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke Him. Never, Lord, He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, to most of us, this interaction with Jesus sounds jarring. And just to give some context, Peter's attempt to walk on water was in chapter 14 of Matthew. And then his next failure was in Matthew 15. This one is in Matthew 16, so again, it's picking up steam. In this narrative, Jesus has just taken the disciples on what was essentially a 35-mile walk up to Mount Hermon, which is in the northern part of Israel. It would have been about a three-day walk, so they would have walked, they would have talked, they would have eaten, they would have camped out, spent time with one another. Now, Mount Hermon, this place they were headed to, was a holy site for a number of different religions. There were several temples there, as many as well as lots of idols that were placed into niches along this uh, face of a cliff there. And here, in the presence of these temples and in the presence of these idols, Jesus asked the disciples who people say that He is, and Peter gets it right. He answers correctly, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the living God. It's almost as if he's saying these other gods are dead. They're just idols of stone and wood, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living 
God. Peter gets it right. Jesus congratulates him. It's awesome. But then in just a moment, Jesus transitions to talking about how he's actually getting ready to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be tortured and killed. And at this, verse 22 tells us that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. All right, now, I would assume that Peter's just trying to help. I would assume he's trying to help Jesus with his messaging and with his vision casting, especially in front of the other disciples. It's likely that, that Peter still, after all this time, three years with Jesus, thought that the Messiah was still supposed to overthrow the Roman government. And many of you will be familiar with Jesus' response to Peter when he says this, "'Get behind me, Satan.'" You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. Jesus' response seems a bit harsh to us, probably to most of us, until we understand the larger context. Embedded in Jesus' response is an awareness that Satan has been and will continue to be tempting Jesus in almost exactly the same way. You don't have to go to the cross. Surely there's another way. Maybe, maybe God is mistaken. Maybe you can't trust Him. Whether you realize it or not, Satan tempts each of us with those same questions as well. Are you good? Do you love me? Do you care for me? Can I trust you? So in these three passages, we see Peter failing because in his fear, he doubts Jesus' ability to keep him afloat. Then we see Peter missing the point of Jesus' words because he's still without understanding despite having walked with Jesus for three years. And finally, we see Peter failing because he accidentally tempts Jesus to doubt his father's plan and doubt his father's goodness. Now, believe it or not, there are a lot more failings of Peter that we could cover. Peter falls asleep a number of times in the garden when he's supposed to be praying for Jesus before Jesus goes to the cross. Later, when the chief priest guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and accidentally chops off Malchus's ear. And of course, most infamously, Peter publicly denies even knowing Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Each of those are mammoth failures. Again, it's almost as if the gospel narratives are going out of their way to point each of them out. Surely it must have been tempting to edit them out or smooth them over. What's the point? I think the point is that God loves, forgives, and uses messy people. And that should be good news to every single one of us in this room. We are far more messy, broken, sinful, faithless than we realize. You fall asleep praying sometimes? You're in good company. So did Peter. You sink into anxiety and worry when faced with the chaos of life. So did Peter. You don't know as much about the Bible and as much theology as you should. Neither did Peter, and he had Jesus as a personal tutor for three years. The good news is that God uses and loves messy people just like Peter, just like me, just like you. Now, it would be very easy to end the story right here, but there is more. We see that in the end that God gets it right with Peter. Some of you will know what happens next in Peter's story. After publicly denying Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest, Jesus is crucified, and Peter leaves Jerusalem and heads back home. Back in Galilee, he's met by several other disciples, and they decide to go night fishing. 
but they catch nothing. At daybreak, some way off on the shore, a figure stood and shouted that they might want to try the right side or the other side of the boat. And when they did, their nets immediately filled with fish. Now, undoubtedly at this moment, they were reminded of their first encounter with Jesus. At this we read the following, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. So even after all of his failures, even after all of his boasting, after his public curses, even after denying Jesus, Peter once again steps out of the boat. He steps into the water, and he makes his way to Jesus. We're told that when Peter got to shore, that Jesus had made a a small fire and that he had prepared breakfast, bread, and fish. But what Jesus had to offer Peter was far more than a meal. Jesus had come to offer Peter forgiveness. Jesus offers each of us that same forgiveness today, right here, right now. Maybe in fear or in shame, you've hidden your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've outright lied about following Him. Maybe you assume that whatever it is that you've done is too much to be forgiven. It's not. The story of Peter is a story of restoration. It's a story of forgiveness. The next time we read about Peter is in Acts chapter 2. He has left home and returned back to Jerusalem And if you remember the last time Peter was in Jerusalem, he denied even knowing Jesus in the high priest's courtyard. But this time we see Peter in broad daylight preaching a sermon that ends with the good news of a resurrected Jesus. Peter declares publicly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we're told that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, 3,000 people trusted in Jesus. 3,000 people were baptized. The end of the story of Peter is that he did indeed become a fisher of men, despite all of his brokenness, despite all of his messiness. And the story of Peter is that he eventually became the rock that Jesus invited him to be. My question for all of us this morning is, what about you? What is God calling you to do? Who is He calling you to be? Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these great stories of failure and redemption. Father, as I personally read the story of Peter, it just makes me realize that if you can love and use Peter, then you can love and use me too. Father, if you can love and use Paul, then you can love and use me too. And so, Father, I pray that that same message would resound to the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, Father, that we would deeply believe the gospel, Father, that we would realize that our sin isn't a barrier to your work in our life, rather it's the very reason for the work, your work in our life, Father, that even our brokenness gets woven into our stories so that we are able to preach powerfully that you are a God of forgiveness and a God of love, Father. I pray that you would reach out to us, Father, that you would pursue us, that we would discover our purpose in you, Father, that we would even discover our new name and identity through you as well, Father. 
We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.